everyone, and welcome to the Live Through Jesus podcast with Courtney Gilmore. On this episode, doubt and confusion, and then the effects of sin and how we break free from it. This is Joshua 7. Quickly before we get started, if you're new to Live Through Jesus, make sure you go to livethroughjesus.com and sign up to receive your free five-week Bible study over Abraham. There you'll also find blog posts that coincide with the teachings on this podcast and social media links, which is another way to keep in touch throughout the week. Okay, let's get started. Have you ever thought that maybe you can just keep this one little sin and it's not going to affect you? You can kind of secretively do this one little thing and you know that it's really not that great, but it's also not all that bad and it's not going to be that big of a deal. Or maybe you can hang out with this certain crowd or be around this certain thing and it won't affect you because you're not going to do it. You're just in the vicinity or whatever. And then later you realize, no, that's actually really been influencing me. It's been changing the way that I do things or affecting me in some way. Or have you ever been in a situation where You've been asking God for a long time, please help me with this situation. And it seems like he's just not listening. He's doing nothing at all to help you. And you're wondering, why are you not helping me? Don't you care about me? Don't you have any power to do anything about this? And then later you realize, no, the reason he's not helping me is because I've been going completely against him. I've been asking him to help me, but then I've been doing everything my way instead of his way. And my way has actually been going against the exact things that he tells us to do. And so you've been wishing that God would help you. And he's like, well, do what I say. That'd be a start. Do what I say. And then I I will help you. But you can't go completely against me and then expect me to help you. These are the things that one of the men in Israel find out today, that his hidden sin is actually affecting him and the rest of the people around him, and that we can't expect that God's going to help us whenever we completely go against him. So last week, we talked about the battle of Jericho, and this was the very first battle that the Israelites fought for the promised land. And because it was their very first battle, God wanted the entire city to be dedicated to him. And some of the things that were within the city, the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron, those were all dedicated to God's treasury. But everything else that was given to God, he devoted to destruction. He said, I want the rest of the city completely, totally destroyed. You cannot take anything out of this city. Any of the things that have been devoted for destruction, if they are then taken out of Jericho and into your camp, then you're bringing destructive things into your home and then making your yourself the object of destruction. So do not do that. So they had this battle and presumably everyone did what God said. 
But then when we get to chapter seven, we realize someone actually took some of the things that were devoted to destruction. But Joshua doesn't know this. And so Joshua begins preparing for the very next battle. The next place that they are going to fight is a town I don't know how to pronounce. It's spelled A-I. And so that's how I'm going to say it because that I, I don't know how you say two vowels together. And so Joshua sends two spies into the town of Ai, which is west of Jericho, about 10 or 15 miles into the hills. And he says, go and spy out this land and just tell me what it looks like so I know how to proceed. And so when he sends the spies into the land and they come back, they say, this is a real small town. We find out in chapter eight that it's actually only holds about 12,000 people in total, not just men, but total people. And so they say, there's only about 12,000 people there. Send two or 3,000 men. It's not a big deal. And so Joshua does this. He sends 3,000 men into the city of Ai and they are immediately chased out of this town all the way to the bluffs. And as they're running down this steep route out of town, 36 of their soldiers are killed. And when they get back to camp, Joshua is totally confused. He's like, we just won a huge battle against the city of Jericho, a fortified city with tons of people. And then we get run out of town by a group of teeny tiny little people and 36 of our people get killed. No one even got killed in Jericho. And so what in the world is going on? Now, Joshua did the right thing. He nailed at the foot of the Ark of the Covenant and he said, God, what in the world is going on? This is verse seven of chapter seven. Joshua says, alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content just to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land are going to hear of it and they're going to surround us and they're going to cut off our name from the earth. What then will become of your great name? And so Joshua, remember before all of the rest of the places were terrified of the Israelites. But now it looks like the Israelites are terrified of them because they're run out of town. And so all of their momentum is lost. And Joshua is afraid that everyone is going to see what just happened and they're going to gang up on them and kill them before they even get another battle underway. And so Joshua did the right thing by going to God and asking him, what in the world just happened? I'm so confused. But then in his questioning, he actually was questioning if God was able to fulfill his promise. He's like, why did you even bring us here at all if we were just going to die? You said you were bringing us into this land and we were going to take possession of it. But now we're probably not going to take possession of it. And so he's doubting God's ability to bring them this victory that he said he was going to bring. But God quickly said, actually, that's not the case. I actually am fulfilling my promise by making you be defeated this time. And so this is verse 10. God says, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things 
They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel can't stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. Remember, that was God's promise. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So God had already told them. He said, I am keeping my promise. I did promise to let you inherit this land and that promise will be fulfilled, but only if you obey me. Because I also told you that if you brought the things that were devoted for destruction into your camp, then you would be devoted for destruction. And that's exactly what happened. You were defeated. And so if you want me to be with you in these fights, you have to do the things the way I tell you to do them. So now you have to go and find these things and destroy them. And then I'll be with you again in these battles. And so before we go any further in this story, I just want to stop for a minute and take note that they were riding high. They were confident and victorious only you know, just moments before with this first battle, they were so excited and it took one tiny defeat for them to be totally deflated. And I just wonder if we're like that sometimes. If we think, oh, I'm trusting God. God is there. He's taking care of me. I love you, God. You're so great. And then one thing happens and we're like, wait, what are you not here anymore? Do you not care about me? Are you not paying attention? Do you have no power? What is going on? <laughs> it's like it only takes one tiny defeat to to totally destroy your confidence in me. Is that really how it goes? And often it is that way. And I just thought it funny that human nature has not changed, has it? We do this to God ourselves. But luckily, Joshua did actually go to God and genuinely ask him the question. He didn't turn his back on God. He didn't give up. He did, you know, question him, but he he really genuinely did not understand what was going on. And his humanness did let him be discouraged and maybe doubt God a bit, but he took those doubts to God. And that's what we need to do. When we are discouraged, when we don't understand what is going on, when we don't see God's work for us, then we should go to him and we should say, wait, I'm completely confused. I don't know what's going on. It seems like you don't hear my prayers or you don't care about me or you're doing nothing to help me. And then God will answer us. And it may not be for this reason. It's not always because we sin. Sometimes God may say something to us like, well, you're not doing what I want you to do. No, I'm not with you in this because this isn't my will. This is your will. And so we always need to be praying in God's will. God isn't a genie that we just get to ask for wishes and he just does whatever we say because we're his children and he gives us whatever we want. That's not how it works. And so if it looks to us as if God isn't answering our prayers, maybe he's saying, yeah, because you're not praying according to my will. Remember the Lord, what people call the Lord's prayer or the model prayer? It begins by saying, 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the first thing that Jesus says that we should pray for. We should tell God that we honor him. And then we should say, we want your will. You know, even Jesus prayed this. Whenever he knew he was about to be hung on the cross, he asked God, can this please not happen to me? And then he ended by saying, but not my will be done, but yours, Lord. And so if that prayer is good enough for the son of God, then it's good enough for us. And so we need to be praying according to God's will. So maybe that's why God isn't with us in our pursuit or in our prayers. Another thing God might say is, well, you're praying and you're asking, but you're not listening. You don't really want to hear what I have to say. Listen to what it says in John 8, 43. He says, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you can't bear to hear my word. And so we may be coming to him and saying, God, I don't understand. And he's like, yeah, I'm trying to explain it to you, but you don't want to hear it. You think that your ways are better. You don't like the truth that I'm speaking to you. And so you're ignoring it. But I'm trying to explain this to you. And so just because it may sound sometimes mean to us, God's answers sometimes sound mean to us. We have to accept them because God is never the one that is at fault. If we are confused, if we are in doubt, it's because there's something wrong with us. We don't know God's ways. We don't understand him. We aren't listening to him. We're doing our own will, whatever it is, but it's never God's fault. And so when we go to God and we ask him questions, we have to genuinely be seeking his answers. We have to genuinely be realizing something is off here. I'm misunderstanding something because there's something wrong with my thought process or my ways of going about things, not because there's something wrong with God. And so when we go to him and we ask him, he may say to us, yeah, I'm trying to explain it to you, but you don't like my answer. And so we have to be listening to God and accepting his answer because he goes on in that verse, uh, in verse 44 to say, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and he didn't stand in the truth because there isn't any truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so we want to hear the truth. We don't want to be siding with Satan, wanting to hear the deception because it tickles our ears. It makes us feel better. Whatever it is that we want to hear from God, God says, no, I am truth. And so you have to listen when I tell you the truth. Don't be wanting the things that you want, because those are ultimately, if they're not the true things, then those are ultimately the things that Satan wants. And so he says, you know, you need to be listening to me. So that may be why God isn't answering our confusion is because we just really don't like to hear what he has to say. And then it could be that we're completely aligned with God. We're doing exactly what God would want a follower of his to do, but we're just not doing it for the right reasons. It's not because we were asking him, how did you want me to proceed? And we were listening to him and we were doing his will. We were just doing what we thought was right. And it happens to align with God's ways, but it's for our own desires. Something 
that makes us feel good about ourselves or look good to someone else. And God says, yeah, I'm not going to be in that if it's all for your pride or all for your ego or your appearance or whatever. And so um, he tells the people this in James 4, 2 and 3. He says, you covet and you can't obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. But then you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly so that you can spend it on your own desires. And he said, sometimes you don't have what you want because you're not even asking me for it. You're just trying to attain it on your own. And then sometimes you have asked me for it, but I don't give it to you because you're not asking for anything that's beneficial to me. You're asking for yourself. And so maybe that's what God would say to us. If we were to say, God, I'm confused. Why are you not working for me? Why are you not helping me? And then it could be that it's the same reason as it is for the Israelites. Maybe God isn't helping us because we're sinning in some way. Maybe we're just living a sinful lifestyle. And so we're heaping trouble on ourselves. And God is like, yeah, these are the consequences of your sin. That is why you keep having trouble is because you're living a troubled lifestyle, a lifestyle that brings trouble upon you. But then again, it may be that you're in a specific situation like the Israelites were in. And it's not that you're just living in sin and you're heaping, you know, consequences upon yourself. Maybe God's actually, you know, withdrawing his help from you because you're not doing things the way that he told you to do them. Maybe you asked him for help in this specific situation and he's like, okay, yes, I agree with that. I want to help you with that. But then you start doing things completely contrary to him. God's going to say, okay, I have told you specifically not to lie, but you think that, that you have to lie in order for this outcome to be brought about. And so, all right, I guess you got this. No reason for me to help you, right? Something of that nature. It could be a situation like that where God does want to help us and he does agree with the the thing that we've asked him to help us with, but we have to do it his way. We can't go completely against him in that situation. And then a totally innocent reason could be that God is working behind the scenes and we're just unaware and we're getting discouraged after the very first defeat when there's absolutely no reason to, right? So there's many reasons, many things that God could tell us if we come to him and say, wait, God, I'm confused what's going on. But we always need to do that. We always need to first recognize our confusion is our fault. We don't understand something. And then go to God and say, what in the world is going on? Please help me understand. And then listen to what he has to say and follow his ways. Don't allow ourselves to be discouraged and quit or, you know, go against him, doubt him, whatever. So I just wanted to kind of do that little detour because I thought it was interesting the way that Joshua went about all of this. Okay, so now that Joshua knows exactly why they lost the battle, he knows what to do about it. God continues to explain to him, you need to find out who took these things. And once you find out who it is, then the things and the person that took them need to be destroyed. And so Joshua goes to the Israelites and he says, hey, 
here's why we lost that battle. And now you need to prepare yourselves for discovery. Tomorrow, we're going to have a time of discovery. And God has told me how to discover who it is that has taken these things. And tomorrow, we're going to do that. So I need you to prepare yourselves today. And tomorrow, we will find out who this is. And then whoever it is will be devoted to destruction along with the things that were supposed to be destroyed in the first place. So first thing in the morning, Joshua gets up, he calls all the people to him, and then he begins casting lots. This was a practice oftentimes that God would use to show them a certain thing. And so he casts lots. We don't know exactly how this is done, but somehow the lot falls on the tribe of Judah. Then he casts the lots again, and it goes to the clan of Zerah. And then the next family is Zabdi. And then it goes to the house of Carmi. And in the household of Carmi, they find out that the man that stole these items was Achan. So it's narrowing down just every time. Cast lots, you find that it's this tribe. Then you find that it's this smaller uh, family. And then the smaller family and the smaller family until you get to the one person. And so the tribe of Judah was the kingly tribe. Judah was the fourth son of Jacob, who was called Israel. So he was the fourth son of Israel. And David came through this tribe. And Jesus eventually, through his father Moses, came through this tribe. And so this man, Achan, would have been Judah's great-great-grandson. And so this is the man that it's found to have done these things. And immediately Joshua says, this is verse 19. My son, give glory to the Lord of Israel and give praise to him. Tell me now what you have done and don't hide it from me. So he's saying, honor the Lord and confess. And then, you know, it'd be the least he could do to the Israelites after all the trouble he's brought on them, right? And so he says, tell me what you've done so I don't have to go and search and figure it all out. Just tell me what you took and where it is. Let's not play this game anymore. And to Achan's credit, he does do this. He knows there's no running from it at this point. And so this is verse 20. He says, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold that weighed 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. See, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent and the silver is underneath it. And so he said, yeah, I saw that beautiful cloak that came from Babylon. Shinar is Babylon. He says, I saw this beautiful cloak and these 80 ounces of silver and the 20 ounces of gold. And, you know, I figured this coat probably belonged to the king of Jericho. You know, it's a very valuable coat, maybe a gift or something that only he could afford that he brought, bought from Babylon and then all of this gold. And I saw them and I just, I didn't even think about it. I just took them. What's so ironic about this is that these very valuable things that he took 
actually don't even have any value anymore, right? Because as soon as he took them, he had to hide them. He can't spend this money. He can't show anyone the beautiful coat. It's all completely useless. But he doesn't think about any of that. He was so impulsive. He just saw it and it looked beautiful. And he's like, oh, I can't pass this up. And then as soon as he got it, he's like, well, what am I going to do with this? I can't even spend any of this. I can't even show anyone. He didn't think about the consequences that God had told him would happen. And he didn't think about what he was going to do with this valuable thing after he got it, if it could even benefit him at all. And we find out very quickly, yeah, it doesn't benefit him. It actually hurts him. And God told him that that's the way it was going to be, but he didn't listen. And so these very valuable things are completely worthless and he's brought trouble upon himself. And now he has to pay the consequences for that. So after they, Achan told him where everything was, Joshua sent some people to his tent and said, you know, search for these items. And when they found them, it says they laid them out in full view of every single person. They brought them out of the darkness into the light, right? So that everyone could see it. It was on full display. And then it says the stolen items and Achan and everything that belonged to him was devoted to destruction. They, all his animals, all his possessions, and his family would all be killed. Now, this sounds horrible to us, but Deuteronomy 24, 16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, and children shouldn't be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for their own sin. And so because this was God's law, and we know that Joshua was following God's will here, we know that the children must have been in on this. They must have known what their father did and they were willing to hide it too. They must have all thought, you know, someday we're going to be able to do something with this. And so we're not going to tell. And because God would not have allowed them to be punished if they were innocent. He says that explicitly in Deuteronomy. Something that's interesting, though, is that it only says his children. It doesn't say anything about a wife. And so that leads us to wonder, did, did he have a wife and she just not get punished? Or is his wife passed away by now or something? And it, it, surely his wife was passed away because he's not going to tell his children and then not tell his wife, right? That would be pretty odd. And then if he did tell his wife, his wife would have had to tell someone because otherwise she would have been just as guilty. She would have had to go to somebody and confess and no one knew until God told Joshua. So we assume that he didn't have a wife, but that's interesting bit of information. And so they took all of his possessions, even his tent, his whole house, <laughs> everything that belonged to him, his whole home was destroyed because... He had brought destruction on his whole family. And so God tells them to first stone all of these people and these animals. And often when one person's sin would affect the entire community, then stoning was the way that these people were punished because God required every single person to participate in order for every single person to be atoned for their sin. But then also one person wasn't responsible because if you're all throwing stones, you don't know who threw the actual stone that killed them. And so no person is responsible for their death. So they don't feel guilt or have guilt on themselves. 
for that. But God wants this person to be punished for their sin and to be eliminated from the community. And because they brought sin on the whole community, the whole community is involved so that the whole community can be uh, free from that sin. When that sin is eliminated, then they're all free from that. And so all the people of the community stoned them. And then after that, because those first items were supposed to be burned in the first place, God said, now all of the things that are destroyed here that have been devoted to destruction, they all need to be burned. The items that were supposed to be burned in the first place, and then all of the people and animals and the things that were tainted by this, all of the things that became the object of destruction because of this thing. And it seems that this just shows a very obvious, like completely, totally destroyed uh, visual for them. And then it also is dishonoring to them, right? Because they're, they're not being buried. They're being burned. They're just gone. There's no care for their, even their dead. And so this is showing that, yeah, we, you're disgraced because of this sin. And then after this, they took all these stones and they made a big pile over the top of the people. And this stood as a big heap to remind the people every time they saw it, they would remember why it was there, why those bodies had to be covered with all of these rocks, that all of these stones had been thrown at these people and these bodies had been burned and buried underneath these rocks because these people had gone against God. And this would be a deterrent to anyone else that decided that they might want to disobey God in these ways. Now, what does this mean to us? What can we learn about Achan's sin? First of all, our sin very seldom holds the value that we thought it did in the beginning, right? It's totally useless to go against God, but often we fall into temptation. We linger too long, something looks too good, and then we can't get it out of our head and we just want to do it. And it's like all rationale goes out the window, right? And we're not thinking about the consequences. We're not thinking about, is this going to benefit me at all? Am I doing this for any real purpose? We're just like, oh, I want it and I'm going to get it. And then you just do it. And then we regret it later, right? But at the moment, it sounds like a good idea. And James 1, 12, all the way to 15 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So he's saying, you know, blessed are you when you stand against these temptations. That is a good thing. But when you don't, let no one say, when he's being tempted, that you're being tempted by God because God can't be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This is the progression of sin for every person. We covet, just like Aiken said, I saw, I coveted, I took. And then what? And then I hid it. That's what we do, right? 
After all is said and done, Satan tempts us further to, instead of confessing our sin, to hide it. And then this hiding is also futile because, first of all, God knows all the things. And so we see that here. No one else knew that Achan took this, but God knew and he revealed it. And so that was futile. And it's also futile to hide things because it doesn't matter if anyone sees the destructive thing. It's still living with us. It's still in our lives. It was in his house. He's brought a destructive thing into his house and he thinks it's not going to affect him because it's hidden in the ground. And God's like, no, it affects you. Your sin always affects you. When you bring destructive things into your life and then you expect to live amongst them, don't think that's not going to affect you. So hiding it doesn't do any good. But it's amazing that Satan does this exact same playbook Ever since the beginning of time, people have been falling for it, right? He goes to us and he says, ooh, that looks beautiful. It looks valuable. You should get that. And then you start thinking about it. And he's like, tells you all the reasons that it's okay. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Or he just throws all of that out of your mind. It's like you don't even think about any of it. You just think, ooh, that is beautiful. I want it. And so you take it. And then the second that you take it, he's like, wait, what did you do? That was wrong. Now you have to hide. No one can know what you just did. And you're like, wait, I thought it was perfectly fine. Now it's not perfectly fine. Now it's a horrible thing and I must hide it. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's a horrible thing. You must hide it. And we fall for both of those things. And so that's exactly what he did here. He says, do it, do it, do it. And then as soon as he did it, he says, hide it. And that's what I can get. Didn't do him any good and it doesn't do us any good. Satan convinces us of these things and he makes us think that we can actually hide it. But I'm going to read you a couple of verses that obviously tell us that we can't, as if we can't tell that again from this passage here in Joshua 7. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, God's, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom he must give account. So we're all accountable to God and he sees everything. We can't hide it from him. Psalm 139 goes into great detail about how we can't hide anything from God. And so I'm going to read you the whole first 12 verses. It says, Oh Lord, you've searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down and you know when I get up. You discern my thoughts afar off. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I can't attain it. It's like, I don't even know how you know all these things, but you do. Where should I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, then you're there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you're there too. That's the grave. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. 
The night is bright as the day. The darkness is as light with you. So we can't hide in the dark. God sees all the things. We may think that we've hidden it from other people, but it's affecting us and it will eventually come out because God knows what we've done. And he's not going to allow us to sit in this sin and not let us pay some sort of consequence for it. The only way to truly be free from our sin is to admit it and bring it out into the light. When we say out loud what we've done, then we're bringing it in full view, right? Just like they did these items that Achan took. That's what God wants us to do. Bring it out in full view. Let everyone see it. Confess it to me so that I can take your sin away. This is the only way to find freedom and reconciliation with God. Just as he said that Achan's sin needed to be destroyed, our sin has to be destroyed. And so we have to bring it to light and give it to God. John 3, 20 and 21 says, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been done in God. People that do things wrong hide. They don't want to be found out. But God says, there's no hiding with me. So bring it out and let's just live in truth. First John 1, 5 all the way through 10 says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we're living in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. See, that's what they were expecting to do. They thought that they could have fellowship with God, that God would be with them in the battle and they could also walk in darkness. And God says, yeah, you can't do that. That's not how this works. Verse seven, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we want to be free from our sin, then we have to bring it to the light, give it to Jesus and let him cleanse us from it. That's the only way. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we haven't sinned, then we make him a liar and his word isn't in us. God knows we're going to do wrong and he knows when we do it. And so to say that we didn't just makes him a liar. And so no point. We might as well confess it. If he already knows it, then what's the point of hiding? Besides that, God knows our need to hide our sin, but he makes a different way. Listen to what it says in Psalm 32, 1 through 5. I love this verse. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up and my heart as by the heat of the summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you and I didn't cover my iniquity. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave my the iniquity of my sin. So God says, if you want your sins covered, come to me and let Jesus cover them with his blood. That is how your sins get covered. When Jesus covers our sins with his blood, then God no longer sees them. They are buried not in the darkness, not in the earth. They are buried with Jesus in his death. He takes all of our offenses and they're nailed to the cross. And over the the cross, it says the crimes that this person is dying for and our crimes are there and Jesus dies for them. And then they are buried with him, dead forever. That is how we actually hide our sins. Because then when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sins anymore because they died with Jesus. And instead, he sees Jesus's blood covering those sins. And he says, oh, yes, I see that person's righteousness, not because we're actually righteous, but because Jesus is righteous and God doesn't see our sins anymore. They're covered up with Jesus. Jesus died for those sins. They've been paid for with Jesus's blood. And now God sees his righteousness in us instead. That is how we cover our sins. So if you want your sins covered, take them to Jesus, confess them to him, bring them into the light, let him die for them, let them be buried with him, let yourself be washed away from those sins. That is the picture of what happens in baptism. We say buried with him, raised a new person. And so we go into the water and the picture is the water washing our sins away while they are buried with Jesus. And then when we rise, we look like Jesus. What a wonderful, wonderful thing that God does for us. He knows our need to cover our sins. And he says, no, no, don't do it yourself. I know they're still there. And you will still feel the effects of them if you try to hide them yourself. Instead, I'll hide them with Jesus' blood. And then they'll be hidden. And I'll see them no more. And I will see Jesus's righteousness instead. When we admit these things to God, we admit to him that he makes the standards and we've fallen short of those things. That gives him glory and honor like Joshua was telling Achan to do, confess them for the glory of God. That is what happens when we confess our sins. It honors and glorifies God because we're saying, I know you make the rules and you deserve our obedience. And I'm sorry for that. And then when we repent of our sins, which means turning away from them, completely turning our back on those things, then we get those things out of our lives and we're free from them. We freed ourselves from those destructive things by turning away from them and letting Jesus take them, letting him take them away and living for him. So. I hope that you've learned something from Achan and you can start to see this trick that Satan plays on you and you can stop the progression. The best place to stop it is the second that we see it and we begin to want it, we say, no, not going to do that. But if we do want it and we do uh, actually sin, 
then don't hide it. Take it immediately to God. That's what we all need to do in order to be free from our sin. So next week, we will actually see them go into the battle. This time, God's going to be with them. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that episode. Also, go to Substack and subscribe there if you would like to receive the written lessons where you can get all of the scriptures and even some additional scriptures that I didn't have time to read here. Those are sent to you once a week. You'll get a lesson in your inbox. Even if I don't do a podcast, you will get a lesson in your in your email once a week. Uh, and it's only $6 a month. And that's a steady stream of Bible study that you never have to go and buy multiple studies. We'll just continue to study together all the time. So if you want to do that, go ahead and do that. Also go to livethroughjesus.com and read the blog post that's there with this. It shows again, just how Satan works and how Jesus frees us from our sins. So go there and read that and then follow me on social media and you can see some scriptures throughout the week. That's all I have for today. So I'll see you back next week. Thanks. Have a good day. Thank you.